the journey is immense and you start with an idea in your head and then there's the idea in the practice room by myself, just singing them. But then everything changes the minute you begin to work with a collaborator, with a pianist. Coming up on In Contrast, mezzo-soprano Stephanie Hotzill and pianist John Milbauer. I'm Ilan Stavans, and In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Stephanie Hotzill is a mezzo-soprano who was born in Germany and grew up outside of Boston. After receiving her undergraduate degree from Middlebury College, she studied voice and received her master's degree from Juilliard. Since 2010, she has been a member of the Vienna State Opera, where she sung a variety of roles. For our interview, Hutzel was joined by a former Juilliard colleague, pianist John Milbauer, a Steinway artist and teacher at the University of Arizona. To start, let's hear Alberto Ginastera's Triste, performed by Stephanie Hutzel from her recording Nostalgia. Thank you. 
It's a pleasure to have Stephanie Houtil and John Milbauer. Welcome to In Contrast. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to start, Stephanie, with a question that has to do with your own relationship with your voice. How did you come to realize the voice that you have, its range, the relationship you have with it, what it can do, and what others might or might not hear through it? So I came to my voice initially as something that was just easy. I enjoyed singing. I didn't have anxiety about singing. A lot of people have a lot of anxiety about using their voice as an instrument. I sang in high school, but more or less to flirt with the boys in chorus. You know, I didn't really take my voice seriously as something that would be part of my future in any real way. But it was something that came easy. And people would comment, oh, you know, you have a nice voice, you should take voice lessons, blah, blah, blah. But it was just something that was there. And it was maybe what it would become was my creative tool. But as a kid, it was just something that was easy and there. And I actually kind of ignored it. I went to college and studied liberal arts, other things, political science, French, and then worked in my father's computer company. And so kind of did a more sort of mainstream track, not really related to this creative impulse, which I was maybe ignoring. And then I realized through doing things that didn't appeal to my strongest interests that there was some kind of creative need in me that needed to be fulfilled. And I sort of just a little bit blindly began to take piano lessons. I was bad at piano. I was not disciplined at piano. But again, a piano teacher who heard me sing once in a lesson, and she said, you know, you need to pay attention to this voice you have. This is a real instrument, and why don't you take some voice lessons? And it sort of came, you know, one of those tipping points in life where I was maybe not sure about going to business school or doing a more mainstream job and maybe wanted to use this tool as something, form of expression, form of creativity. So I essentially did an experimental year at New England Conservatory and said, okay, I'm going to try this. I was guided initially through a wonderful local teacher in Newton, Massachusetts, Frances Kadnoff, who said, do this. She prepared me for an audition at NEC. I was accepted and I said, okay, I'm going to just try this out. And I basically fell in love, you know, not just discovering this world of classical music, but discovering that I had it in me to be the venue for this creativity and music. And I basically fell in love with the whole thing and kind of started my life over again. This was at age 25. So yeah, it was kind of like a backdoor entry. You know, I didn't know at age 10 or 15 that I wanted to sing. It kind of came at me and caught me by surprise. And at that point, how did you start caring for your voice? How did you start shaping it? Did your relationship with it change? It certainly did, because I think if you don't grow up with this awareness of the instrument, which I didn't. So I was coming at all of this as an adult. Well, first of all, there was a the whole technique. Actually, when I entered New England Conservatory, I didn't actually know what a minor key was. This is how behind I was. I didn't grow up with an instrument. So I had to essentially learn basic music theory, musical skills, conducting a little bit for rhythm. All that stuff was coming at me. As an adult, I was like a kindergartner again as an adult in this new field. The advantage of being 25 and a mezzo-soprano, so a warmer, medium-voiced female voice, was that my instrument was mature in terms of a kind of sound. And that was the advantage of being older when I came to it. 
And so some technical things were naturally in place simply because of maturity. But of course, a lot of the pyrotechnics you learn with singing, that had to come with lots of lessons. But then there was a whole sort of lifestyle thing around being a singer and caring for the voice, focusing on the voice, resting the voice. That was a whole other thing that I really had to learn because that preciousness around resting, not catching a cold, all of that was a huge readjustment. That's not who I am. I'm not really a high maintenance person. So there was a whole kind of lifestyle around it, which I had to change too. You have described any other options you had in terms of career, which you discarded for this one in music as mainstream. So what is it that you do? It's not mainstream. Well, Let's say, you know, having grown up in a West suburban Boston area with kind of big focus on academics and college and graduate school and potentially business, the arts is a scarier thing. And certainly today, it's a much scarier, much riskier thing. And so, you know, where you were maybe going to take a more, I guess the better word is more conventional path to suddenly flip around and say, I'm going to do something that's very risky, that's completely out of left field, really, and yet was fulfilling some bug in me. It was a pretty radical step. So I guess relative to the more conventional thoughts I had about where my future was going, it was a big shift. What would you say to someone now that at a younger age discovers the power of her voice in terms of that possibility of embarking on a career. Sounds like from what you're describing that there are a number of different obstacles or buffers in society that tells you this might be exciting, but it's incredibly risky too. What would you say? Well, a lot of it is about the fire in the belly because it is hard, this field, and it's only getting harder. The opportunities are getting fewer and further between. I hate to say, especially in the U.S. at the moment. I mean, my career is actually, for the most part, based in Europe. I did all my studies over here, but I knew that, just as an example, per square kilometer in Germany or Austria or even in France and Italy, there are just more opera houses. Even smaller communities will have their center of pride around an opera house, around a large cultural institution. And there was a time in America where that was more the case as well, but that's changing. So basically, there was more opportunity over there. I grew up with European parents, so the idea of starting a career in Europe was not so scary to me. I had some languages that I grew up with, so all of that was easy. So when I teach young students now, there's really that looking in the mirror And seeing that even the opportunities that I had 20 plus years ago have changed radically. It's just gotten more difficult. The whole opening of the East Block, that flood of amazing talent from over there. So there's many more talented musicians and fewer opportunities. So the fire in the belly that I had when I started, it has to be even more for the kids today. So there's that being reflective about how much you're willing to kind of fight for your instrument, your creativity, your voice in this. I think that would be the main thing I would say to kids. I'll give an example, a personal example. I have a 14-year-old son who is very musical, a little bit undisciplined in terms of focusing on a piano or whatever. If he were to discover his voice in the next years, it's interesting as a parent who knows, as a parent, but who happens to know the arts business, I would warn him of how hard it is of having to not have a lot of money initially and hope for the big break 
And yet, if this is really, really what you want to do, it, I believe it will carry you through. The way I have been able to enter your music is through your recently released, I believe it's 2016, CD called Nostalgia. And it is a beautiful compilation of pieces that includes Mahler and Ives and Ginestera and Buchardo and Piazzolla. I want to ask you a number of questions related to this CD, but I will start with probably the central one, which is, how do you define the word nostalgia? So maybe we'll take it through this sort of seemingly random group of composers. Like, why are we jumping from three very different points of the world? But in fact, it's a personal place and in a sense a nostalgic place because Ives is a composer from New England. I was born in Europe but raised in New England, and it's my first language. So it was natural in a way for an American singer to tap into the songs of Ives in terms of a personal voice. I've lived in Vienna now for almost 10 years, and I grew up with the language, German language as well. So on a personal level, where I grew up, what I've adopted living in Vienna and the sort of nostalgia around that city, the nostalgia about New England. And the third is entirely new to me and was essentially recommended to me by my artistic manager who was born in Colombia and studied music in Argentina. How we imagine these compositional groups sort of took on the concept of nostalgia through memories, through dance music references, very much so in the South American music through old tales that are retold in the songs, you know, and then, of course, there are the classic nostalgic themes of loss, of love, memories, all of that. And so the Argentinian element was the new thing for me. I did not grow up speaking Spanish, certainly didn't know the dialect from that region. So that was the big mountain for me to climb. And I really didn't know the music. I knew some of Piazzolla, I knew a little bit of Rinastera, but not much. So that was the big mountain I had to climb. But in a way, it was such an amazing contrast to the other two composers and added a totally different layer of what you might imagine sort of nostalgic elements to be. So it was sort of weaving this theme, which goes in many different directions, but through vastly different parts of the world. Do you have a nostalgic or a melancholic side to your personality? Yes. I think if you're a performing artist, musician, if you use your body, your mind to express in that sense, I think you tap into all of that in a big way. John, you are based at the University of Arizona, and you actually concentrate in your work with Latin American musicians, particularly with Mexican ones. That's been the case. A lot of my work has been involving Latin America. Tucson, where the University of Arizona is, is 40 miles from Nogales, Sonora. So many of our students come from Mexico, and we are now, as of last year, a Hispanic-serving institution. So there's some charge that's important to many of us who are there as faculty or staff students. And in addition, uh, I first traveled to Mexico City, I think, in 2009 after arriving in Arizona in 2007. And we were meeting with the faculty of UNAM, the Conservatorio Nacional. And we were a little early, they were a little late, and they said, we have a music sale going on in the lobby. So go take a look. And it was their house editing 
So we went, and I looked at the piano music, and here's all of this music. And I'm looking at it. I've never heard of it. Some of the composers I knew, but not as composers of piano music, like Manuel M. Ponce is known more for guitar, orchestral music. And flipping through it, and I thought, just feeling it in my hands as I'm looking at it, this sounds like Chopin, or this is going to feel like a sort of Latin Chopin. And so I brought all of the scores back to Arizona, started playing it, and realized that it had been forgotten or in the hands of someone who didn't want to share it for 60 years and had just been published in the early 2000s. I love playing this music. And in addition to that, I travel Brazil, Colombia, Chile, and enjoy collaborating with people there as well. Do you think, John, that particular cultures have in their DNA particular rhythms? Or is it kind of the exception of the musician that leads us in that direction? Is there something that really can be said as, this is Latin American music because it's in the soul? That is at least the prototype or the stereotype that we often hear. I don't know about it being in the soul, but certainly it's in the language. Mm. I lived in Hungary for a while, and you can look at Hungarian music and the relation to Hungarian folk music and this something about accent patterns, and words always begin with an accented syllable. So that affects the music, and how people speak affects the music. And if you talk to someone who's truly trilingual, let's say, and if you assume that one does think in a language when one plays, and you ask that person who is trilingual, are you thinking in Russian or in Polish or in French when you're playing, you'll get three very different results from the music. And so I think the language definitely impacts how we hear music and how we express it. And if you look at Asia, the difference between Mandarin, Chinese, Japanese, and Korean, I think some of the patterns that you hear in, say, pianists from those countries can be explained in part by the languages. Japanese is more like Italian. It's very clear beginnings of syllables. The vowels are pure. But um, Chinese is more like French. It's more nasal, it's more legato, and Korean is its own thing. So as far as Latin American, Brazilian, Portuguese, or Argentinian, Spanish, all very different from Mexican Spanish, different from Chilean, Colombian, certainly. So I don't know about the Latin soul. I think a lot of it has to do with language. In the language of, say, Manuel M. Ponce or Piazzolla or Ginastera, as you're saying, it's connected with the language, with the vocabulary, with the rhythms. What happens when that is interpreted by somebody that does not come from that background? Is this maybe the equivalent of a text being translated by an intermediary and it comes out through John Milbauer's lens? I think that's true for any performer, that what we do is not creative, it's recreative. It's creative in a sense, but really we are not inspired as much as we are inspired by the music of the composer. So I think Steffi and I both can point at people who might be from a completely different culture from the music that they're known for, but they just take to it so readily. And I don't know what the explanation for that is. Certainly if people who have a lot of facility with spoken language, say before age five, they have that part of the brain that is developed and they can assimilate other languages more readily. And there's something about that in music as well, that if you experience music at a young age in a significant way, then I think you're more easily able to change gears from one style to another. That's something I hope that I do. One of the pieces in Nostalgia is by Piazzolla, Los Pájaros Perdidos. It's a lovely piece, and it's a lovely interpretation. Let's take a listen. Oh, <laughs> 
Astor Piazzolla's Los Pájaros Perdidos, performed by our guest, Stephanie Hutzel. Stephanie, how did you come to Piazzolla? What does he mean for you, and why this particular piece? So again, when I started with this Argentinian song literature, I had to... First of all, that was a crazy journey unto itself, because getting a hold of this music... There's a certain amount of begging, borrowing, maybe a little stealing, working whatever connection you could work to just get a hold of this music up here. If you can fly down south and pick it up at the libraries there, that's one way to do it. But up here, that was a challenge. And then I listened to whatever recordings I could to be inspired by it and played through it and sang through it. And then you just come to the pieces, as John was saying, that speak to you and touches you in some way where you think, I want to sing this. I want to somehow add my voice to this. I think that's the most important place to start, obviously, is that you fall in love with the piece, but then to also ask yourself honestly, am I a vehicle to bring this piece to a beautiful place? You know, that's something you have to think about. Sometimes you can hear music you love, but you're not the right person to perform it, no matter how much you love it. And so the Piazzolla, I've been an admirer of Piazzolla's music for a really, really long time. My husband, who's a flutist, played one of his milongas at our wedding. You know, this is music that I love, but I you know, wasn't really aware of his vocal music. And also, there's an idiomatic sort of tango South American voice, which is very different from a classically trained voice. So you have to come at this music from, okay, I'm an art song singer, and yet this music enabled me to sort of play with that, to kind of go into a place that's a little dirtier in a... <laughs> in a special sense, I don't mean dirty, dirty, but in the aesthetic sense. Yes, maybe. an aesthetic sense. You know, to go away from noble sense one has of German art song versus a certain kind of approach you take to certain German art song, or the Ives, which is a very speaky place for an American singer. Ideally, you reach people in the best way, in my view, with Ives by coming from that speaking place, speaking from your heart, a little bit speechy. So then you take something which is really quite foreign, different language and a different style. And I had to listen to a lot of music, listen to those Latin American tango singers, but not copy them because I would failed at that, but find a way to incorporate the classical voice background, the art music background with some sense of what I could maybe do with the music as well. I want to bring something that John said, and that is that what a musician or an interpreter does is exactly that, to interpret, to give her or his approach to this piece. And so I wonder, Stephanie, if you know what your interpretation is before you have actually began singing it in full, after all that research that you're talking, or only after having rehearsed it a number of times, after playing. I'm thinking of a famous statement in literature that I don't know what I mean until I see what I say. You have to see the words stamped on a page or on the screen. How do you come to the final version and to recognizing it, that it's yours and that it's the one that you are comfortable presenting to your audience? Well, certainly the journey is immense and you start with an idea in your head and then there's the idea in the practice room, you know, by yourself, by myself, just singing them. But then everything changes the minute you begin to work with a collaborator, with a pianist. So when I recorded these with Charles Spencer, there was a particular energy with them. They were also very, particularly Argentinian songs, were very new to me then. So I was less bold. It took me a long time to sort of own them. But it's never just you. There's all the elements of growing into the music, hearing it with the piano, and working with this particular pianist. So 
When I did those in 2016, they were new. It was a, quite a while ago. And then revisiting them in the past year or so with John has been exciting because discovering them anew, it's always a collaboration. It's never just, okay, I'm prima donna singer with this idea, do my tempo, blah. You know, this is a team coming at it. And at the end of the whole thing, it's a totally different baby than what you started with. I want you simply to go a little further on that question of boldness or the appropriation that you have of the piece. It is after living within the piece that you feel it's yours and that you are comfortable with. That is maturity. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's with anything that you revisit. Also, say you reread an amazing book that moved you when you were 18, and then you read it again in your mid-40s or later, and how it affects you in entirely different ways. It can rock your world, change your entire perspective as a young person, and then when you're older, you can be reminded of how you were affected by mm -hmm. the book at that time, and yet process it very differently. And it's absolutely the same with the Argentinian songs, you know, as I said, being a little scared of singing them correctly in the right language, and yet then finding actually Argentinians all about being a little lazy with the Spanish. It's a softer and maybe even being a little loosey-goosey with the diction, because that adds to that sort of fluid quality of the music, which you would never do with German. It's all mm -hmm. about the consonants and the clarity and becoming freer and owning that. What's wonderful is I've lived with this program now. I first started researching in 2014. It's really been a while, and it's such magic to be able to do it again and to do it with a new partner who's bringing brand new things to it. And I know we're talking about the Argentinian songs, but even in a way more drastic is Mahler. That music and the sort of existentialism of Mahler texts and music, I've lived with Mahler for a much, much longer period of time, You know, studying those songs right when I started taking singing seriously. And those, you just grow with them and evolve with them. And some Mahler songs, you can spend 20 years until you really know what you want to say and feel like you have the voice to do it. I can give an example of a piece that's not on this CD, Ich bin der Welt abhanden gekommen, which is one of Mahler's great, great Rückertlieder, which I had thought very seriously about putting on this CD. And during the recording sessions, I just felt too outside of the piece. I had this idea, and I just felt too in awe of the song to feel like I could be a voice for it. You have to say, I can do this, and I really want people to hear what I have to say about it. But if you don't feel ready, if a piece is too awesome in a moment, then I stepped away. I know I want to sing, maybe record that piece someday, but... You have to read at the right time. Yes, to be at the right time. And revisiting them all are now, you know, again, every five years, ten years, whatever. It's an amazing discovery how you grow with this repertoire. John, how did the collaboration start? I understand that both of you met at Juilliard and that you were the TA, the teacher. Tell me. I was a piano TA at Juilliard for the students who weren't piano majors. So the singers, the string players, the wind players were all assigned to one of, I think there were four TAs. Two nice things about it. One, the class size was very small. Usually in those classes at most schools, you've got 22 people on electric pianos with headphones. In this case, the maximum was four. And I had a very lovely class of Stephanie and Samia Bahu, another soprano, and two crazy bassoonists, these two undergraduate guys, right? They're undergraduates. And your job as the TA in group piano is to cajole students who don't want to practice into practicing. And I had mixed success at that. It was my first year as a TA. 
And I've always loved the voice and the repertoire. And so one particularly unproductive day, we'll say, I said, okay, bring out your music. What are you working on? And I read through something with Stephanie and I was awestruck by the quality of the voice. I don't remember the piece, but I just remember the quality of the voice. This is a very special voice, special timbre. So that was exciting. Much more interesting than the Kula or Clementi or Bartok Microcosmos, whatever she was playing at the time. <laughs> and how did you come back together after all these years, each of you having taken your own path, but now reconnecting for nostalgia? How did it come about, Stephanie? Well, I do need to qualify that John was being way too nice just now. <laughs> <laughs> We were total brats in his glass. You know, you have to realize there's a different kind of discipline between what a pianist has to prepare and a singer. They're both crazy hard in their own way. Singers are just a kind of different animal. We operate a lot of this sort of gut instinct, and hopefully we're blessed with the timbre, a voice that's appealing, and of course we have to practice. But we can't practice eight hours a day. We can practice, if we're lucky, maybe two hours a day, and then we have to be careful. You know, voice gets just tired. It's a muscle that gets worn out. Pianists just have to work really, really hard. It's about putting in these hours to do this magic on the piano, and then they make it, like John does, sound so easy, and it's really not. So you bring this sort of singer animal into a piano setting, and A, the singers didn't want to be there because it was a requirement, and we were all a little bit undisciplined, but we were funny, and we charmed him, so we got out of as much as we possibly could. But we did have a real chemistry. We enjoyed each other in the class. And then it was clear we had a gut instinct that it would be fun to work together. But it just didn't happen at Juilliard. You know, I ended up moving to Europe and John went out west. And so we lost track of each other a little bit over a time. And then when the opportunity came to go on tour with Nostalgia in the States, I wanted to work with an American pianist. And immediately to my knee, I just had this gut instinct that we should work together. And it's been great. So what does it mean for you, John, that bringing of the two instruments, the voice and the piano? I come from a family of actors, and my father will tell you that every performance is a new performance, that you literally know what you're doing, but you have no idea what you're doing until you're in front of an audience. And that's easier maybe when you are solo on stage because you're in control. But when you are with somebody else, this is the dynamic that you were talking about. So how does that dynamic work? You have an extra variable, right, or an extra set of variables, and so it really keeps you on your toes. But for me, it's really fun. I love playing solo because you are 100% responsible for the entire product. But pianists practice alone, in a room, alone a lot. And so when we were in school, it was five, six hours a day in a room by yourself. And so for someone who is, let's say, social by nature, as I am, the effect is that you become very lonely. And pianists are often professionally isolated, professionally lonely, maybe not personally, but you know, that sense that when you go to work, you are alone. So to work with someone else is a joy when it's the right match. And I worked with singers a lot when I was in school, and nine out of ten were not a good match. When you have a great one, it's wonderful. And that match is about chemistry? It's something unspoken? It's what happens beyond the notes in, in the sensibilities? I think so. How much rehearsal do you need to come up with a convincing product that is mutually agreeable? And we don't need to rehearse much. And Stephanie listens very well, and I like to think that I listen well. 
And so a lot of things you don't have to say. You can just hear where Stephanie is placing her consonants on words. I play late or I play early based on that. So it's really trying to get inside the other person's mm. musical being and anticipating and reacting. Before I go back to Stephanie, I'd like to ask you, John, if you can tell me the relationship you have with your fingers. With my fingers? Yeah. I'm quite careful with them. I used to play tennis a lot, and I quit when I moved to Arizona. I thought, I just need to stop cold turkey because the people I was playing with were starting to have wrist problems, arm problems. So I thought, that's not good. I have stopped swimming for the same reason. So I do protect them. I used to ski. I would not put my thumbs in the pole straps because that's the number one injury with, you know, when you catch a pole on a mogul and your thumbs just pulled back. So the relationship is a protective one. I'm not particularly obsessive about them, but I don't do anything that's going to make them tight. So I don't lift weights. I need them to be limber. And I see in students, kids in their 20s, they've practiced to the point where their hands have become so stiff and the muscles within the hand are too stiff. It's very hard to work those out. And I think you need a flexible hand, that a flexible hand is a strong hand if it's connected properly to the body. In the moments just before you're about to go on stage, before you actually touch the piano, do you let your fingers loose? Do you do anything else? Or it's just a regular arrival to that stage? The day of a concert, I will warm up in the morning, and I'll probably go through the entire program slowly. And maybe half an hour before a concert, not more than that, I will be backstage warming up. But I found, as I get older, it's not about warming up the fingers. It's about warming up the torso, making sure that my alignment is correct with my legs and my shoulders. If the shoulders are up, if the elbow's tight, then you're not going to have circulation in your hands and you're going to have cold hands. My hands are, I, mean, I live in the Southwest, but my hands are never cold. And I think that's a sign that things are working well for a pianist. Mm. So nothing about the fingers, but certainly about the body as a whole. I want to go back to another piece in the CD. This one is by Carlos Lopez Buchardo. It's called Prendiditos de la Mano. Let's take a listen to this one. Oh, 
Stephanie Hutzel performing Prendiditos de la Mano by Carlos López Buchardo. I want to ask you if delivering a piece of music in a language that is not yours, and by this I mean the three languages or all languages are ours insofar as we want to make them ours, but you talked about German being the language that came with your education in at home with your mother, and English where you were raised in New England, in Boston. Your father is Dutch. So singing in Spanish, not feeling that you came through the pipeline with this language, you talked about getting comfortable, but not having the words in your repertoire or in your lexicon the same way, is it tougher? Is it intimidating? Is it, how do you work with pronunciation? I noticed in the Piazzolla, for instance, you sound very Argentine. You were coached in a way that made you feel that it comes from there. How does that work? Is there a kind of distancing because the language removes you in some way when it's not the one you were raised with? Well, I think the challenge with the Argentinian songs is the listener, I don't think, can have a sense that the singer is distanced. Then she hasn't or he hasn't done their job, especially with this music, which is full-on emotive. You have to own the emotion, which means owning the text. With a slightly more cerebral kind of music, be it a French chanson or a German lied, if there's a slight distance because of a foreign language, it might still be okay. We have countless English singers, American singers who are brilliant German lead singers, didn't grow up with the language, but through extensive study of the text, they figured out the style and were able to bring themselves to it. For me, the connection to the piazzola, for example, and the tango was actually kind of more a raw emotional one, an absolutely necessary skill, which is often sort of ignored, but which I think has to exist for good singers is to have excellent ears for language, for really being able to ape the sound of a language, to really copy the sounds. We do a lot of work with phonetics. Really, it seems silly, you know, the IPA, the International Phonetic Alphabet, but if you've studied long enough, you own this alphabet and you really are able to reproduce these sounds. And you have people who sound native who have nothing to do with these languages, and yet when they sing them, they sound native or close to it. Good composers guide you through the language because they do the accents of the words are written correctly in the accents of the music. So if you really listen to the music and to the rhythm of the music, then the flow of the language will come from that too. So my guess is if you were to make me speak those texts, I would sound foreign. But singing it, because Piazzolla does it based on the accents of the words, it becomes much easier. That's your guide. But again, I really had to work. I coached those a lot, again, with my agent who is from that part of the world. So he really worked on it with me. And again, the moving from the correctness of the Spanish to the sort of lazy freeness, that's a huge step. It means you have to own it in a really huge way to be that free again. You go from being really uptight, learning it correctly, to being so well prepared that it sounds completely free and easy. We're coming to the end, and I have one more question for both of you. John, you are in Arizona, where you teach in an institution, as you mentioned, that is connected with Latin American culture and that caters for Latino students, a Hispanic population. You, Stephanie, live in Vienna. You perform in a number of different European and American opera houses and big symphonic spaces. 
And both of you, because of what you do, are connected with teaching and relating to the next generation. And I'd love to hear your reflections on where the music aspect in our education, you were talking about the narrowing of opportunities, Stephanie, and I wonder if because of the rush to train people in the way we are, with a vision of to the practical side, this type of music is becoming the casualty. And if that is the case, what are the consequences? And how different is Europe to the United States? What do we want with music study? And what is the goal? So in a large public research university like mine, should music be limited to essentially Western classical music? And I think the answer is no, that music should be seen broadly. And I would say the same, actually more so for liberal arts colleges. We are not conservatories. So looking at music broadly makes sense to me. So in terms of education, I would look at music education broadly. You want young people to listen attentively and to make sense out of organized sound, whatever the style is. And that's where we're really failing, that people get stuck with style. We should be teaching Bach. No, we should be teaching hip-hop. We should be teaching the young how to listen and how to make sense out of what they're hearing and let them find what they want. So that's really a shortcoming of both sides of that argument and a pitfall. Conservatories, it's a different story. So you are preparing for a market, and the markets are different in different places. So, I mean, you asked a question about Latin culture that I dodged and talked about language, but certainly you can go in South America and Central America and find a much more vibrant Western classical concert life than you would find in the United States. Concert halls are full for people who want to hear Mozart, Bach, and Beethoven. So it really depends on the venue, but I'm an advocate for thinking of music broadly. And what I do is quite specific, but when I think about teaching and music, I prefer to expand it. Because if we don't expose the next generation to that broad structures of music, then what? Well, we've already found that, right? That the young are unable to make sense out of what they're hearing. And so what they are drawn to are, I would say, very rudimentary songs that are put together by committees or groups of people who've figured out an algorithm to determine what's going to be successful. And then you overproduce it afterwards and turn it out. So people don't have the understanding to make sense out of music of any complexity, and that could be popular music as well. And they don't have the language, they don't have the tools to explain what they're hearing and to make sense of it. And as a result, they're quite lost. I think the young, when they hear music, that it's not something that's quite easy for them to understand. They hear a wall of sound that is undifferentiated, and we've really not helped them find a window into that, whatever the music is, including folk music. So that's what I would like to see more with education. Your take, Stefan? Well, living in Vienna, we have a sort of really luxurious situation because... Take, for example, the Vienna State Opera, where I work. The house is 98% full on any given night. It's just a given. The three concert houses, including the Musikverein in Vienna, sold out on any given night. The other two opera houses in town sold out. So we have this you know, luxurious situation, and that's probably going to be like that for a long time because, for example, the Vienna State Opera is the largest employer in the city of Vienna. We're responsible for... 200,000 nights a year in hotels. So we've really justified our existence. We don't have this existential crisis that we have in classical music here. The downside of that is in what John was describing is because 
we're fighting for our lives a little bit in the music world, the more complex music world, I'll say, over here, classical music, modern music. One is forced to come up with creative and innovative ways to attract young people, attract new audiences. If you're in a situation where you're sold out every night, maybe you're just going to be conservative and not try enough new works, not commission enough new composers and that kind of thing. So we're in this place where, as a musician, I lived in New York for a time, like everybody else, struggling musician in New York, trying to find work, trying to pay the rent, arrived in Vienna, thought I had died and gone to heaven. There was work to be had everywhere. My husband, who's a musician, we live in the same place and work. This is like rare for musician couples to have this absolute luxury to live and work in the same place. And so it's a wonderful thing. The traditions are so deep there. You've got this sort of lengthy generational support of the classical arts. But I think there are trouble signs in the future because those older generations are going to die out. And younger people, their attention spans are much shorter. That's a huge problem with classical music, with opera, certainly. The fact that you actually have to do your homework to listen to classical music, especially opera, if you know the story ahead of time, you might just enjoy it a little more. People don't do that. They don't take the time. But all these things to go and become more innovative for the future. We have this luxury now, but how long is it going to be that way? It's been extraordinary. I've enjoyed it very much. Stephanie Hutzil and John Milbauer, thank you very much for coming to In Contrast. Thank you. My pleasure. The voice, such a precious instrument. We are surrounded by voices all the time. Our own voice is part of a larger symphony of people talking to one another. We pay attention to what they say and even to how they say it. But we seldom isolate the voice, allowing it to exist on its own. The voice, such a precarious instrument, like a violin, a flute, a piano. Except that, unlike these items, the human voice isn't outside us, but inside. We carry the instrument within. We are hypnotized when a voice distills sounds in angelic ways. It makes us feel elevated, commuting with the angels. A refined voice has something religious in it, a power to mesmerize, to transform. Modern technology exposes us to voice in disembodied fashion. We hear it, but we don't see where it's coming from. It appears autonomous, independent, as if allowed to exist on its own space. I don't know how to sing. My voice stumbles every time I try. I can hear music, but I can't reproduce it. My voice is mechanical. But when someone else's voice sings, my joy is enormous. I feel the laws of gravity are defied. I believe that dreams can become realities. The voice, such a mysterious instrument. Next time on In Contrast. I've been writing all my adult life. I'm 59, so that's 36 straight years I've been writing. Every few years we'll think, well, when am I going to go do what I'm really supposed to do? I guess, you know, I should go to law school now or medical school or go be a guitarist and a singer or I don't know. But I love sentences, and when I'm not writing, which is rare, I feel far away from my very center. Andrew the Buse III on the next In Contrast. 
For previous episodes, including our interviews with vocalist Mago Herrera and Brooklyn writer-violinist Colin Jacobson, children's author Norton Joster, and artist Sonia Clark, visit our website at nepr.net. Help spread the word about In Contrast by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, where we invite you to share your comments on this program and others in our series. And to see our in-the-classroom materials for educators, visit our webpage at nepr.net. Our intern is Delina Hatley. Our music is by the Fresh Cut Orchestra. The executive producer of In Contrast is John Vosey. I'm Ilan Stavros. Thank you for listening. In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. <laughs>